A couple of weeks ago, a video started circulating on Vkontakte, Russia's most popular social network, where a woman calling herself Luda recites a two-minute poem about Russia and about the Donbass and about a lot more. The video was apparently filmed in Lysychansk, an occupied city in Ukraine's occupied Luhansk region, by none other than Graham Phillips, the British YouTuber, journalist, propagandist who once worked as a stringer for Russia Today and now apparently roams Ukraine's occupied territories documenting the greatness of Russia's invasion and the horrors of the Kiev regime. That, that kind of thing. Now the video of Luda from Lysychansk and her poem about being born in the Donbass, being proud and Russian and committed to victory, this video gained well more than a million views in one repost. You might have guessed already, yes, you're hearing Luda speak right now. Her video is playing here in the background. Now, I'm not a poetry guy, and I'm not an avid follower of Graham Phillips either. I might never have even learned about this viral video were it not for a scholar who tweeted about it, arguing that folks on Twitter who monitor Russia often pay too much attention to mainstream television. When something like this, he warns, is far more insidious because Russians actually consume it. Given how much work goes into monitoring Kremlin TV and acknowledging the temptation to treat the nonsense broadcast over the airwaves as a glimpse into popular thinking, I thought these observations about the Luda video were interesting and actually quite challenging. So I invited that scholar onto this podcast. Today I'm talking to anthropologist Jeremy Morris. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. I'm back with a fresh episode, the first of 2023, and it only took me three weeks to get back to work. Before jumping into today's interview, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from our international audience to sustain our work. Every day, millions of people from Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. In English, our team delivers Medusa's most important stories and reaches thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with a special newsletter and podcast. This one, in fact. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. All right, let's get to this week's show. As I said at the top, I spoke to Jeremy Morris, a professor of Russian and Global Studies in the School of Culture and Society at Aarhus University in Denmark, where he focuses on critical political economy, class, and post-socialism more generally. He told me that I could introduce him as an anthropologist, but his research is actually a mix of anthropology, sociology, area, and cultural studies. So I hope you didn't fill up on appetizers. Our conversation kicked off with another look at the video released by Graham Phillips, the one that I already described, and that turned quickly into a discussion about the sources scholars and journalists use to describe and generalize trending opinions among Russians, particularly those related to the invasion of Ukraine. A lot of the interview also features Dr. Morris's criticisms of public polling in Russia, both how it's conducted and presented, and also how journalists and the mass media use polling to make big, broad claims. At one point, Jeremy refers to a recent interview by Spiegel International with Lev Gudkov, 
the scientific director of the Levada Center, the foreign and independent media's favorite Russian pollster. That article, titled Russians Have Little Compassion for the Ukrainians, tells readers in its subheader that Russians have a lack of morals and a victim mentality. But we later learn that a recent study by Levada found that more than a third of respondents expressed feelings of moral responsibility for the death and destruction in Ukraine. Now, is 34% a lot? Is it a little? Well, Dr. Morris and I discussed that and more in the interview. Now, here it is. Why don't we start with this Graham Phillips video? He's the sanctioned British journalist who's been living, I guess, in the Donbass or somewhere in Ukraine or, or Russia. I don't know. Occupied Ukraine, I mean, obviously. But he had this viral video a few weeks ago, likely staged, is what you, how you described it, where there's this woman reading a very long poem by memory, apparently. <laughs> I mean, I know that, that you know, people in that part of the world are very adept at doing this. When I watch it, I'm like, oh, my God, how does she, how does she do that? I would have to practice that for years. But anyway, and it's somewhere, it's in a city in the Luhansk region, in, in occupied Luhansk. And this, this, this video comes out, and it's a viral hit. And you had this very interesting Twitter thread where you basically, I mean, I'll, I'll try to explain how I see it, and then I'd, love, I'd like you to explain how I'm meant to see it. Okay. But uh, this, this, you're saying basically that this is where, this is the really kind of resonance like content. This is the stuff that matters to Russians that are... Yeah, basically. I mean, yes. So like what, what's... If looking at that video and then looking at you, you, you make this argument that people are maybe too focused on stuff like Vladimir Solovyov, like this TV stuff, and they miss. Yeah. What's the what? What's 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 the takeaway here? I guess it, this, although you know, I wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't normally pay much attention to the content that people like Graham Phillips put out. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it, it, it was sent to me kind of independently by. A couple of different uh, Russian people that I, Russian informants. Okay, you know, anthropological aside, sometimes we talk about research participants as informants, which sounds a bit weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll probably just do that for the purpose of this interview, but sure. um, there are other ways of, of talking about them that's, uh, you know, uh-huh. use less kind of loaded language. But a couple of informants basically sent me this video without any context in WhatsApp and, and we'll maybe get onto messaging platforms a bit later. And, and I had no, you know, I had no idea what this was. I didn't even realize it was Graham Phillips to begin mm. with. Right. He's not in the video. Yeah. It's just his voice. He, he, you can just hear his, his, his voice. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it made me think about how much I'm exposed on Twitter to the Russian media uh, monitoring, which I think does a great job. And, and I was, I tried to be careful and say, you know, I'm not, having a go at this, right. at the brilliant work that, that these people do at the BBC and elsewhere to kind of yeah. uh, translate and then mm-hmm. condense these, you know, completely insane TV shows yeah. that are broadcast to thousands and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. But I, I, it, it was not so, it started off then as a way of saying, look, sure, we should pay attention to that because it does tell us something, but maybe it doesn't tell us as much as we think it does, right? Especially if we have less context about uh, the way that Russians consume all kinds of media, including social media and including platform messaging, which is a big unknown. I think, you know, there's a lot of big unknowns and I'm not a social media scholar. You know, it's not something that I've done much work on, but it also just seems to me that 
that I think the war kind of slightly nerdish thing, you know, the war will force us to do research in different ways. There's a lot of discussion going on among academics, you know, how do we then find out what Russian people think about their own society, about the war? And I think there's going to be a, a mad dash. We can already see that. that. There's a mad dash towards doing content analysis, sometimes using computational methods, right? Which is fine for things like Telegram, for things like TV. But that brings with it all kinds of problems, right? And the TV one is a great example. So on Twitter, we see all of this media monitoring that makes out that people are readily consuming and supporting this completely insane content from people like, as you mentioned, Solovyov and Skabeva. But in reality, to what degree is that representative of, well, well, how Russians consume media and B, what they actually think is a completely different matter. So the, the Graham Phillips, right? So the fact that this was sent to me, and then I did a little bit of digging and saw that on contact here, the, you know, the, the Russian, the most popular Russian social media networking site, and it had half a million views on one channel alone, and that channel was merely reposting it from other channels, mm -hmm. led me to think, well, this is a good example of, of, of a message that is supporting the war, right? But in a slightly different way, a message that is anti-Ukrainian, but in a very different way than the way that we're often presented with um, when we look at the, 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 the TV media monitoring, right? And the poem itself is, if I remember right, it's the, the, the vibe is that like the people of the Donbass will, that they're like under threat by the regime in Kiev, but they'll stand strong, right? It's like less about death to Ukrainians and more about we're, we're under siege. Yeah, and it's insidious and effective at the same time in that it's not, again, it's not presenting this, as you say, this message that the Ukrainians are, are horrible fascists. Yeah. Um, and uh, they have a proxy government that is uh, completely legitimate. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's much more effective. It's, you know, yeah, focusing on the victim narrative mm -hmm. of the Donbass inhabitants, right? right? And that you would watch that and, and one could get the impression then, yeah, that, okay, terrible things are happening. But look, you know, the, our cause is just, you know, a lot of, a lot of us have talked about how there are these narratives of just cause, right? And a, and a noble war and all this stuff. But this is a great illustration of how you could be completely sold on that through consuming this kind of propaganda, which is, I mean, we should call it propaganda because it is propaganda. I mean, it might, she might be a real person. She might have written this poem herself, but just the way that it's been created, curated and presented mm -hmm. is for propagandistic aims, right? And, mm -hmm. and Graham Phillips, whatever else he is, he's paid or has been paid in the past by Russian media, right? right. Russian state media. So what then is the, what's the big difference? I mean, besides the messaging, what's the, what's the big difference between a viral video like this and a, a rant by Solovyov on primetime television? Right. And this again gets to the methodological problem, which is that we don't know how much is being shared, what things are really being shared between Russians, right? Because especially since the war, but even before that, there was the observation that, well, quite often people are quite reticent to post things onto their public feeds in, in their Facebook clones or whatever, right? 
So we don't actually know what people are showing, but, but this is a good, if you like, proxy in that it was watched many, many times in contact here. Mm -hmm. And then it was clearly shared quite a lot. And, and sometimes again, you can see a vague indication of that when you receive a message in, for example, WhatsApp, mm -hmm. where it says this has been shared many times, right? It tells right, you right. that. Mm -hmm. And my point kind of go relates again to the television in that I think there's a slight danger when we get fewer sources of understanding Russian society, that we tend to go for what's easy. And you and I, I think we've, we've had this discussion before, Kevin, where we said, you know, where we discussed how we're all fixated on Telegram, but does that mean Telegram has huge amount of salience in most Russian people's lives? Probably not. And I would even go as far to say, and I think there's evidence that supports this, that television, especially since the beginning of the war, once people got over the initial shock, actually people backed away from television. And, and even before the war, there was a big question about how actively Russians consume television, right? I mean, and there's, a, there's, there's really, really old sociological research on TV habits, right? That say that people passively consume a lot of television. And of course that does have an effect on them, but we should be careful in saying, well, TV propaganda has a big effect on people. Mm -hmm. It has an effect on them, but how you would actually measure that would be really problematic. There's something called the hypodermic needle effect of media. And some people say that media in uh, especially highly kind of politically controlled places like Russia can have a big effect. Other people say, well, actually, no, people retain a high degree of critical thinking, even in, you know, even in a war, right? So... That was kind of where I was coming from. And, and it was just a reminder that there's this huge amount of stuff that we don't know about Russian society and that we can't know. And so we should just be really cautious about making knowledge claims. Because again, one thing that the war shows is that huge amount of people have got a lot invested in becoming experts and pundits like, like, like you and me, Kevin, right? Um, and you'll have noticed yourself. I mean, we can get meta here and say, well, you know, there's now a massive market. It's worth a lot of money. It's worth a lot of kudos and clout in being an expert on what Russians think. You know, are they fascists or are they not? Mm -hmm. Are they willing executioners or are they not? And people are already building their careers on, I have to say, the flimsiest of foundations. In And, and I guess social media analysis is one way of doing this and making it seem really easy and seem really convincing when actually there's a lot of unknowables and a lot of other contexts that needs, needs to be taken account of. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing social media analysis and drawing conclusions from it. But again, if it exists in a vacuum, if that's all you've got, and again, unfortunately, that is all, uh, all we've got in a, lot of, in, in a lot of situations relating to the war, right? Because mm -hmm. we don't have direct access to people to, to do interviews with, we don't have very much access beyond a small number of foreign correspondents mm -hmm. on the ground to do, you know, Vox Pops on the street right. and things like that. And why would we pay attention to Vox Pops anyway? You know, there's, a, there's also a big methodological criticism of, of Vox Pops. Just, it's just a, a kind of plea for people to yeah. calm down a bit when, when, they, when, they, when they like leap on things like the media monitoring. And say, yes, yes, all the Russians have gone completely insane because they are consuming Solovyov. Solovyov, I think, has gone completely insane, but I right. mean, that's his, it's his job to be insane, right? Mm -hmm. 
it's a really old point that media is not reality, right? Okay, it's a filtering of reality in some way, but it can be just as distorting as, of reality as, as revealing. What about survey data? I know that this is another thing you've written about recently in the context of reporting about Russians' attitudes about the war and so on. And it's, it's one of the things that a lot of journalists and pundits and so on will, will cite when trying to make an argument about whether Russians are endorsing the war or tolerating it or secretly plotting a revolution or whatever. And the, probably the, the source that they most often draw on is the Levada Center, the independent Levada Center. You know, it's the it's it's uh it's usually described as respected internationally and so on. You've written about problems with with both using survey data to make these arguments and specifically the work of of is it just the is it the Levada Center writ large or is it just Lev Gutkov? No, it's everybody. It's the whole thing. So like, can you explain? Because I mean, this is I'm sure I've as I was saying before we started recording, you know, this is a, these are mistakes or these are issues with with work that I'm sure I've done. Medusa does. Everybody does. What's what, what's your I don't know if it's advice or just sort of your insights for journalists and people that do this who are listening. Like, what ought they know? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I'm also, you know, I also have an interest in um, the kind of circulation of, of expertise knowledge, right? And I've done surveys myself. I've been contracted by survey companies. Survey companies exist in a kind of symbiosis with journalism, and that's fine. I guess... In a less febrile environment, it would be easier for journalists to take a step back and then try and triangulate, balance it objectively with other sources of information. But again, like the media monitoring, like the kind of extraction of, of, of information and extrapolation from social media to say, well, all Russians are this or all Russians are that, I think focusing on survey data is highly problematic. And I've said this multiple times, I've written about this multiple times. And again, I think almost the presentation of Levada as somehow this island of objectivity in the sea of, of politicized coverage, again, is naive, a mistake. You know, I'm not saying there's no value in Levada. I'm not saying Levada are not professional, but they exist. They exist for a reason, right? They are, they are still operating in this highly politicized context, right? So the, just the way that they approach a question has to, has, the way they approach asking questions reflects the fact that they have to negotiate their position, that they have to be careful about what they say and what they ask. So just the framing of questions is often, you know, really raises an eyebrow even among their colleagues, right? And the post, I mean, I wrote a post about Levada polling ages ago, earlier in the war. And I wasn't really having a go at Nevada, but I drew on discussions that I'd had with people that work in similar polling outfits, sealed workers, you know, people that go around the street and actually collect data from people and people that telephone people at home, right? You know, the political environment in Russia, I think, has led to a deprofessionalization of the actual conduct of doing these surveys, right? Now it may be that they 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 can they can say, well, we, you know, we, we know that it has this level of uh, indeterminacy or you know, we know that we have this high percentage of refusals and we've taken account of that. That, of course, is fine. But at the end of the day, I mean, Greg Yudin, well-known Russian sociologist, he drew attention to the fact that really there's only 10% of the population that are willing to 
talk to strangers about politics, mm -hmm. let alone really, really contentious issues like how they really feel about the war, right? So when, when a poll says it has 30% refusal rate, those are just the, that's just when they ventured outside the 10% of the population that will speak to them? Well, yeah, there, <laughs> there's, a, there's a whole kind of devil in the detail uh -huh. of what they mean by refusal <laughs> okay. rate and what they mean by response mm -hmm. rate. You know, and I am, you know, although I have done a lot of this work, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a professional pollster. And it just seems that there's a huge amount of unsaid devil in the detail. I would put it okay. that way. And, and yeah, I mean, Greg, Greg Uden's point that he made again during the war is a great example. In his view, only around 10% of people are willing to engage with being cold called, right? And, and I said recently, I wrote recently again, try and imagine it even in our own societies, whether you live in the US, whether you live in Europe, you know, you're being cold called on an extremely controversial topic. Yeah. It could be abortion in the US, right? It could be, it, it could be Brexit in the UK, right? It could be sending weapons to Ukraine if you're in Germany. You know, there are a lot of people that are just not going to engage with something that's controversial. Does that mean their opinion shouldn't be sought? No, their opinion should be sought. But again, there's a kind of inbuilt bias in surveying, right? In that there's a particular kind of person that is more willing to, to do these things. And again, the less, the less charitable people, Russian, I mean, Russian sociologists, say that really Nevada has built a kind of database of crazies, right? Because <laughs> you'd have to be crazy to really be, be engaging with survey mm -hmm. field workers now, right? Because mm -hmm. there's no guarantee of anonymity of your results, really. And again, most Russians, let's, again, let's go back to the point that I was making earlier. My position is that most, most Russian people are critical thinkers, right? So what implication does that have? It also has implications of how we should, how we should trust data right, that has been collected in this very artificial way, yeah? So there's all these criticisms of survey data. And I've got a piece that's going to be coming out next week or in a few weeks with uh, Russian Analytical Digest out of Zurich, where I can kind of go into this, this classic sociological criticism of survey data. It's very unnatural. The way that I answer a survey to you when you ask me, let's say, about whether I'm pro-life or pro-choice, maybe quite different to the way I answer that survey in a couple of weeks' time even, right? Even if I think that I have immutable, unchangeable opinions, I'm deluding myself, right? So this comes back to the fundamental questions about the war that Levada asks, where they're framing it in a very particular way. For example, they never ask, do you support the war? They only ask, do you support the actions of the Russian armed forces, right? And if I'm a patriot, regardless of what I think about death and destruction in Ukraine, of course, I'm much more likely to say, yes, I do support the Russian. Who wouldn't support the Russian armed forces? Mm -hmm. It's a stupid question to ask me, right? And you're much less likely to answer no, right? The way that it's framed. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I mean, this goes back to very, very long-standing criticisms, again, which Grigory Yudin has been very prominent in making about the way that Levada asks questions about support for Stalin, right? Well, not support for Stalin, but how people feel about Stalin, yeah? Or even support for Putin, right? And again, when you ask different questions about how people feel about Putin, they give very different answers, right? So when you say, you know, who, who would you vote for? Who is the most trusted politician? Right, they'll say Putin, right? If you then say, ask questions such as, you know, 
can you name a politician that you think has the answers to the real problems that the Russian society is facing? Putin goes down from 80% to a much, much, much lower kind of name recognition. He's much, much lower in the kind of group of, of names that then people come up with. So just there's some good illustrations. But yeah, I mean, I'm not by no means an expert on survey data, but what I am kind of hypersensitive about is the way that the war seems to, again, push us, especially as scholars, researchers, in the direction of relying more on survey data and more on secondary survey data. So again, even if the Levadas say they're going to put all of their data online, they're not going to put all of their data online. The data is still going to be processed and curated in some, in some way. Yeah? A data set, again, is not a neutral thing. Right? It can be presented in different ways. And so I just think there's a big danger that because the war closes off Russian society in some ways, we then kind of fall into the trap of relying on what are at best secondhand or you know, second, second order or third order filterings of what Russian people think. If indeed they do think one thing, right? Because that's the other thing, right? What is public opinion? Well, it's many, many gradations of things, even in the same person, as I said. You know, you ask me about abortion, you ask me about any, any issue right. that is a complex issue, I might have, you know, a variety of feelings about it. And again, they might not be reducible to I'm pro-choice or, or I'm, or, you know, or I'm pro-life. What about context, right? And it's the same with the U Ukraine war, right? There are very, so, so my bottom line is, and, and I catch a huge amount of flack for it every time I speak about this or tweet about this, is that the actual hyper-jingoistic, ethnically racist towards Ukrainians, right? That constituency is relatively small and not very important in Russian society. That doesn't mean that, yeah, passively there is support for the armed forces. And, you know, my main contribution, if you like, as again, a non-specialist really, in this whole kind of political approach to, to support for Putin and, and support for the regime is that there's a lot of defensive consolidation, which is people are really shocked at the beginning of the war. Nobody expected it. The last thing Russian people wanted was a war. And the, the last nation that they would have wanted a war with was with Ukraine. And again, there's survey data that shows that just a year ago, right? Just over a year ago in, in late 2021. But once it happens, people find ways of becoming amenable to messages. Some of them are messages that are used by the regime as well to defensively consolidate, to say, yeah. well, you know, we are under threat now. Like it or not, right or wrong, this, this is now a war for Russia's survival as a state and sometimes as a civilization, right? And so people become amenable to that message. Even people who are extremely anti-Putin and people who think that the war was started illegitimately, that it is a war of conquest, that it involves war crimes, that Russians are responsible for the suffering of, because that was another thing that Levada asked, that Russians are responsible for the suffering and have moral responsibility for the suffering of Ukrainians. You could simultaneously agree with that at the same time as saying, well, we're in this war, we've got to win it. Yeah? And I hear that, unfortunately. Right. I mean, quite logically, I hear that all the time now, mm -hmm. even among people who, you know, at the beginning were horribly shocked and thought this was a catastrophe for their 
for their country. Yeah. So that's what I mean by defensive consolidation, among some other nuances that maybe we don't want to get into now. You can still use, I mean, researchers should be using social media responsibly. And I think they should be paying more. And the point, the other point of the Graham Phillips thing was that they should be paying more attention to what people are sharing on Contact because we assume, again, I think it's a, a wrong assumption. And I also made this wrong assumption for many years that Contact is this completely apolitical space where Russians share cat videos with each other, right? And, and they also share copyrighted music because they can do it there and they can't do it elsewhere. And that's true. But it's also true that despite the war, despite censorship, despite criminalization of anti war sentiment, you can find all kinds of diverse public sentiment expressed on contact by individuals who are not hiding their identity. And that was also the other, the other thing that I talked about in the context of the discussion of the Graham Phillips video. And when you look at that content on Contacta, for example, are you kind of going to the things that show a lot of shares and a lot of like yeah. views and so on? Or is there something, is there a different way to go about that? Because I know it's, again, then we're, then we're still kind of following numbers in a certain way, but maybe that's, the, that's a good way to do it. I'm not sure. Or do you go to the argument that is the most original and just kind of on some intellectual level resonates and seems to say more than that thing that has a million views? Because that, you know, cats get a million views too. Like views aren't necessarily the thing that drives what's important. I don't, I'm not sure. Like as a researcher, when you're reading that stuff, what shows importance or significance to you? Well, it goes back to the contrast with television. So television is highly controlled, edited, obviously, and a quite a sim simple medium to control. And, and the Russian state does it really, really well. It does it by remote control, in fact, and it delegates it to, to people who are perhaps not really politically very important whatsoever. But social media, life, contact here, I think shows how, unless you completely get rid of media, where people can share, can like, and can make comments that, you know, you're not going to get rid of expressions of highly diverse opinion, right? Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not an expert on China, but I work with lots of China specialists. And even in the China case, you know, there's this observation that Chinese social media in reality is incredibly politically diverse, just that you have to make the precaution of having a proxy profile in China when you want to have a political discussion or you do it again behind closed virtual doors, right? But it just seems to me that, yeah, we, we, we do have sources that we have access to remotely, not being in Russia, that show us a much more complex picture. You would expect people to be really self-censoring. They're not. Well, at least some people are not. Yeah. You would also, again, we, we, if we thought we sometimes think the FSB and security services are all powerful. They're obviously not. They don't have the capacity. That's the other thing about information, right? It's just so much information. Even if you train an AI to find these people expressing dissent, it won't work very well because of the amount, the volume of information and because of the use of irony. You know, irony, AI is still not good enough to deal with, to process irony. Right. And many other people things. often fail to detect it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Implicit messages versus explicit. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some really good research done on Russian internet, Russian language internet. There's a book that's just that's recently come out, co-edited with Mariella Weimars, I think 
you know, she and her colleagues have done so much work on this and really said that there's a huge number of tools that people can use to use social media and use internet-based digital research, right? Digital, including digital ethnography and connective ethnography. And it would just be a shame if we fell into the trap of using the simplest and easiest tools, which then are distorting of social realities, right? And that example of Contacti, I think, was a really good one, where you have what is still a public page, a news portal, a regional news portal that 330,000 people are members of, where most people are posting under their real names. Mm-hmm. And increasingly, because of the number of senseless deaths in combat of Russian servicemen, they're willing to say, they're willing to call a spade a spade and effectively, you know, break the criminal law and, and say, say this is, a, this is a tragedy, this is senseless, which are all, you know, which are all could be, I mean, they could be arrested under, right. under the laws against discrediting, yeah. Russian, discrediting the Russian army. Yeah. So it's just a re, you know, five minutes of going beyond what is easy to find, right? And what is filtered through Telegram or Twitter. And, and we can find this really interesting data sets. Again, it's a data set that are public and that could tell us a lot about Russian society. So, I mean, the question of, of, you know, how much do Russians support the war? How many Russians support the war? Like, those questions linger, obviously. They're going to they're gonna stick around for as long as the war lasts and probably longer. And if people are not looking to survey data, and, you know, they're still going to look to survey data, but when they want to go beyond that, what do you, what, methodologically, what do you recommend? I mean, both for journalists and for scholars and just for ordinary people who, who are interested in the subject, what, what, what do you suggest? I mean, I know that we've talked about considering if things go viral or trend on social media. And that's like another window into what resonates with Russians on a large scale. Beyond that, I know that having conversations with Russians you know is helpful, but that can be anecdotal. What do you, what, what do you suggest? So a classic problem is that we're so used to dealing with percentages and the way that journalism presents opinion, that it's very hard to then unthink that and say, well, actually, there are very different ways of looking at it. And of course, yeah, as, a, as an ethnographer and anthropologist, you know, my whole career is built on trying to understand things through having long conversations and longitudinal relationships with the people that I talk to, my informants, right? So again, it means that if they're lying or if they're being insincere, then I can pick up on that and there might be a reason for that, right? And I might be able to make a deduction about why, why they're being insincere or dissimulating, right? But I mean, there is great long-form treatments of, for example, uh, attitudes towards the war already. I mean, there was a great article the other day from the BBC Russian service, and I forget, I'm really sorry, I forget the, the author's name, but I tweeted it out. And it was a very long read where this, these two journalists had interviewed Russians. I think they interviewed servicemen who had been fighting. And that, for me, was so much more useful in getting an insight into why Russians had chosen to go and fight, how they had become disillusioned, but also, again, how they might then still passively or fundamentally believe in their country right or wrong, right? 
And again, to give to give Levada its due, in the write-up of this controversial story in Der Spiegel, right, with Evgudkov, he actually made a point of saying, well, there's, this is actually based on interviews. But of course, Der Spiegel presented this headline-grabbing quote, which is that Russians don't feel any remorse for Ukrainian suffering, mm-hmm. with a with a graphic, with two statistics, basically, 60-something percent saying they don't feel any moral responsibility, and 34, I think it was, percent saying they do feel moral responsibility. So, I mean, there, there are ways, I think, I think avoiding percentageizing, mm-hmm. that's a word, percentageizing. Even, the, even though 34 percent is, you could argue it's quite big. Well, I mean, that was my immediate reaction. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of my colleagues, um, a British sociologist, was like, this is really depressing. Yeah. And she had good reasons for saying that. Sure. And I respect her opinion. But at the same time, for me, it's like, well, yeah, but you could, like you say, Kevin, you could interpret that completely the opposite, right. which is, wow, 34% of Russians were open in saying to a stranger whom they could not necessarily trust that they feel moral responsibility for death and destruction in Ukraine. That's mind-blowing to me. Again, knowing more con- context, which is the fact that very unlikely that people are willing to open their doors to strangers to talk about things. Most people are not going to engage in a telephone conversation with people they don't know, let alone about these topics, right? You know, very few people have landlines anymore or pick up their landlines. You know, they're being found on their mobile device, which they all know, all Russians know, can be traced back to them personally. You know, there's no such thing as a burner phone in Russia. Well, I mean, there is, but most people have given over their passport data to get a SIM card, right? Sure. Everything you say and write on a mobile phone can be traced back to you. That's what you must assume, right? And you're being telephoned by somebody who says, hello, I'm from Levada. I'd like to know about your feelings of moral responsibility for the war. Um, Now, again, Lev Gudkov said in this interview with the Spiegel that that these were actually in-person, at-home, hour-long interviews, right? But then again, there's also devil in the detail. How did they get to a statistic? a percentage from what actually sounds like really qualitative, you know, in-depth discussions where over the course of an hour, surely these people expressed all kinds of views, right? And again, this is the kind of stuff that I write about. So people that I know and that are in that are part of my research, they will say things like, isn't it terrible what's happening? We've got, you know, it's got to stop. I wish the government would stop. At the same time, you know, 30 seconds later, they'll say, well, you know, but the Ukrainians are to blame. Why don't they just, yeah. why, don't, why are they fighting us? Right. And then you'll say, you know, often this, this will be my observation of, of a third party, right? I'm not necessarily a part of the conversation. The other person will say to them, hey, you know, we're actually bombing them, right? They're like, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. But, you know, no, but, but they're still to blame because, you know, they're choosing to fight in and contest these cities, right? Mariupol is a great example where, even now, the whole narrative about Mariupol is highly contested, even by quite well-informed Russians, right, who might consider themselves, again, to be anti-Putin. They might consider themselves to be anti-war, but they will tell you that the Ukrainians are to blame. Right. And they will have very, very complex, well-reasoned, I'm not saying true, mm-hmm. but in their minds, well-reasoned arguments for why that is their truth, right? And this is, I think, again, a good example of where long-form journalism can really come into the fore. And maybe 
you know, there can be a conscious decision to avoid the metrification of opinion. But of course, I'm not naive, you know, inevitably it's what, you know, it's certainly what got our attention to this De Spiegel interview, right? Very, very eye-catching statistic. And I wouldn't have read that article if it hadn't been for that opinion poll presentation, right? Right up front with this very, very partisan strap line, which is, you know, Russians are, don't feel any remorse. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> There's not really, not really an answer, Kevin, but my point is that there are a lot of academics who are supposed to be, you know, really, really good at critical thinking and balancing sources and thinking about objectivity. And yet they are also kind of swept up in this uh, fever about Russian society being completely monolithic. Um, well, so that's also easy, easy to do on, on social media, like Twitter, too. Yeah. <laughs> Things that we tweet wouldn't necessarily go into a, our next research paper or whatever, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> You've been listening to The Naked Problem. On today's show, you heard from anthropologist Jeremy Morris about the challenges of measuring public opinion in Russia and accurately generalizing anti-war sentiment. We also discussed the opportunities for research using social media, particularly to complement or maybe even offset the weight that's typically given to television content. Dr. Morris also has an excellent provocative blog at postsocialism.org. So please visit that website if you found his insights here interesting. He's also a very, very funny writer. So it's enjoyable reading, even if you don't always agree with him. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and thank you for supporting our work here at Medusa. Until next week.